Hello, my name is Mario Morales, and I'm one of the elder candidates for Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church. Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church is a church plant in the Joliet area seeking to plant a Reformed Baptist Church. In doing so, we hope and will utilize the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. So myself and Luke have been providing an overview of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And today we find ourselves in chapter 13, which is of sanctification, and chapter 14, which is of saving faith. So let's go ahead and look at chapter 13 of sanctification. And just a friendly reminder that the confession provides footnotes to the Bible pointing to passages that help to flesh out the truths or that this confession is recognizing in Scripture. These verses aren't the sum total of where we're able to find these truths, but they are helpful to um, look at them and read them so that we can at least see what when the confession states something that it believes the scriptures teach, you can at least look at where it is the writers of the confession were looking to. And so let's look at paragraph one of chapter 13. Paragraph one, we can uh, define this paragraph as being, um, as seeking to define what sanctification is. And so I'll go ahead and read through paragraph one, and then we'll go back and I'll just uh, nuance some of the things that, that paragraph one is trying to say. So paragraph one, they who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection are also farther sanctified really and personally through the same virtue, by his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened. In all saving graces, to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So looking at this first paragraph, we see the word they, and they is just a helpful reminder that from effectual calling up till this chapter, chapter 13, the they is those whom God ha is redeemed, the elect of redemption. It is they who are united to Christ. It is they who, it goes on to say, who are effectually called, which we saw in chapter 10 and regenerated in chapter 10 as well. It says those who are regenerated. Well, what is regeneration? It elaborates having a new heart and a new spirit created in them. We see this again in chapter 10 when we were looking over uh, effectual calling. They who are united to Christ effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them. How did this come about? The confession says through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, which we saw in chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. So these, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther, also farther sanctified, really 
and personally. This farther sanctification is just this continuation of redemption. Those who were called, those who were adopted, those who were justified are also those who are sanctified in chapter 13. They are, this is that farther steps of redemptive history. And they are sanctified really and personally. Just as in chapter 10, they were really and truly in a state of sin. In this paragraph, it states that they are sanctified really and personally. Through that same virtue, it goes on to say, and then it sort of slips this phrase, which has been stated before in previous chapters, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. So sanctification, we see, is a work of the Holy Spirit and the word of God dwelling in them. And so sanctification involves several actions. And so this is where the confession now moves us to, these several actions of sanctification. Sanctification is, it goes on to say, the dominion of the whole body of sin now destroyed. Dominion, it, this dominion really is the dominion of Satan, of the power of the world and the power of the flesh over the whole body that, it, it, that is destroyed. And yet we see that the whole body of sin remains with its several lusts. So let me go back to where it says the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified. You see these, the lusts of the flesh remain, but they are more and more weakened and mortified. It's the dominion of the flesh and of the world and of Satan that is destroyed, but the body remains with its several lusts. Yet they are more and more weakened and mortified. The confession goes on to say, and they, this they again is those recipients of the, of the redemption, those who are predestined the elect, and they are, as the, as the lusts of the flesh are weakened and mortified, they more and more are quickened and strengthened. Just a reminder, this is by the word and by the spirit dwelling in them. They are quickened and strengthened, it goes on to say, in all saving graces. This is spiritual graces, not unto salvation, but as a result of salvation. And these saving graces, it goes on to say, leads us to or enables us to practice, to do things, or to live a life that results in true holiness. So it says, let me go back to um, where it says, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness. And then it ends this, this paragraph, without which no man shall see the Lord. I want to go back to the previous phrase um, where it says, to the practice of all true holiness. The confession up to this point has been laying down doctrine, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of the fall, the doctrine of the covenant and of the mediator and of free will, and then of those 
actions of God where he calls and he adopts and he justifies and here now sanctifying. Those are all doctrinal truths, which for the elect results in a life towards living towards holiness. So what I'm getting at is that where it says to the practice of true holiness, this is just devotion. This is a life that is living out practically the truths of the spirit dwelling in them and the word. So there's a phrase out there of doctrine and devotion. This is this is where we see those roads intersect with one another, where, where we've laid out all these doctrinal truths, and now we see that this is that we are quickened and strengthened in all the saving graces to begin to practice uh, true things that are tr that lead to a life that is that is truly holy. And all of this, without which no man shall see the Lord. So we see doctrine established enables true devotion. Let's look at paragraph two. Paragraph two will begin to uh, present that although we are sanctified, it is still a sanctification that is imperfect. And so we'll read paragraph two, and then we'll go back and I'll flesh out some of the things that paragraph two is trying to say. Paragraph two reads, this sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abides still some remnants of corruption in every part, wherefrom arises a continual and irre irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so we can see that sanctification as it said earlier, throughout the whole parts of the body of man, um, his body, uh, it, it here it just reaffirms that this sanctification is throughout the whole man. Throughout the whole man, having um, destroyed the dominion that sin and death have over the body. Yet, it is imperfect in this life. So sanctification is imperfect in this life. This imperfect, this word of imperfect is the work of the, it doesn't mean that the work of the word and the spirit is defective, but that it is unfinished. And remember uh, pointing to uh, the previous paragraph, the lusts of the flesh are weakened and destroyed, but that phrase more and more prior to that indicates that the lusts of the flesh are continually more and more weakened and more and more destroyed, yet uh, the 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 yet there abides still um, a work of salvation, a salvation yet to come, that this paragraph is at least embracing and confessing. So this sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, and this is because there abides still some remnants of corruption in every part. Wherefrom arises a continual and irreconcilable war. And it goes on to state precisely what this war is in, in the man that awaits a, a full redemption yet to come of the body. It says the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Let's look at paragraph three. Paragraph three, after um, confessing that there's this warfare continue, continuing on in those who are of the elect, those who are being sanctified, 
yet there is a, always a moving forward for the elect, for the people of God. So let's read paragraph 3. Um, this is the last paragraph of chapter 13. and So I'll read paragraph 3, and then we'll go back to the beginning of this paragraph and just flesh out some of the things that it's trying to say. So paragraph 3 reads, In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after an heavenly calling, in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed to them. And so going back to the beginning of this paragraph, this, this war of the flesh, against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In this war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, that is really sanctification may be weakened by the flesh. We may find ourselves giving ourselves over to the flesh for a time. And that's important that it specifies that for a time, though it may, uh, may much prevail yet and this reality is, is or th this, this is really here to, to encourage the believer to not sort of be in total despair if they find themselves in a season of giving themselves over to the flesh. So this part is, yet, though the con through the continual supply of strength, that continual supply of strength from, chap from paragraph one, where the, the lusts of the flesh are more and more weakened and mortified through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, against the, again, the work of the Holy Spirit, the regenerate part, that, that new man that does exist in the old man, that regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace. They grow in grace. Remember, in uh, paragraph one, they are more and more quickened and more and more strengthened. And so they grow in grace. And so what is growing in grace? It says they are perfecting holiness in the fear of God. They are pressing after a heavenly life. And these all being done in evangelical obedience. That word evangelical just means saving obedience or having been saved. This, this living a life of sanctification out of salvation, working from salvation. This evangelical obedience. And to what? It says to all the commands. The commands of who? To all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word. And so we see the, the word affirmed, the word that dwells in them with the, the work of the spirit of Christ sanctifying them, which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed them. Evangelical obedience to the commands of which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed them. So let's look at chapter 14.
And so chapter 14 is going to be the first of many chapters that begin to present us with doctrinal truths concerning um, the responses of man in this redemptive plan that is working itself out in time. And so we see, really from man's point of view, this uh, chapter 14 of saving faith. And so faith being really that thing that that you know we sort of not that we end up doing, um, not as a not as a work, but um, as a response to everything that has happened prior to this. So we think of again the chapters of God and His decree of um, the covenant that was made, Christ the mediator, and then effectual calling, adoption, justification justification and then sanctification here now we see of saving faith so there are three chapters in our three paragraphs in chapter 14 and so we'll look at paragraph one and paragraph one is going to be the uh, introducing us to the origin of faith and then sort of the increase of faith and so we'll read paragraph one and then we'll go back to the beginning and sort of flesh out some of the things that paragraph one is trying to say. Paragraph one reads, The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. And so we see that the beginning words, the grace of faith, that faith is an action of grace from God upon the man who, and the man and woman who are of the elect. For it says, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe. So grace leads us to saving faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls. It is grace and it is the work of, here it says, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Um, this was, this name for the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, was used in the previous chapter. I love it because, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a name of the Holy Spirit that comes out of the Word itself, but it's a helpful reminder to see that redemptive work, the, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of Christ, it just bonds the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit together in the work of sanctification and here now in the work of saving faith. But we see that this, uh, this enabling to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Um, that phrase whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, um, the next paragraph will flush out what it means to believe. Um, that there is a belief, um, here it affirms that there is a belief to the saving of our souls, but we'll see in the next paragraph that it nuances what true faith really is. And what, um, what, what 
some belief, how some belief can truly not be saving faith. So it says, The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought, that is, this is worked out, ordinarily um, brought out by the ministry of the Word. So we see again the work of the Word and the Spirit working together here now with, with saving faith. And this ministry of the Word is first and foremost the preaching by Christ, by Christ's appointed ministers. This is the, the ministry of the Word is the preaching of the Gospel by Christ's appointed ministers. But it isn't to exclude the, the ministry of missionaries, the ministry of Bible studies, the ministry of one-on-one -on -one sharing the gospel with people. It doesn't exclude that, but it, does, it is primarily, primarily the work of ministers preaching the word. So it, and, and so this work is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. And by which, so from the word, by which also, and this ordinarily rotting, this, this uh, bringing out this, this uh, faith in the believer, and even reaffirming, not unto salvation, but faith throughout the life, is affirmed also by the administration of baptism. It goes on to say, and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means, there are other ways in which this this ends up happening faith is established and then fleshed out throughout the life of the believer through other means appointed by god appointed of god and so faith is i'm adding that word faith is increased it goes on to say at the end there increased and strengthened let's look at paragraph two and here I, I had mentioned earlier that paragraph two is going to nuance really the basis and it begins to define what true saving faith actually is. So let's read paragraph two and then I'll, we'll go back to the beginning. Paragraph two is quite, quite long. And so paragraph two reads this way. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself, and also apprehends an excellency therein above all other writings and all things in the world, as it bears forth the glory of God in his attributes, the excellency of Christ in his nature and his offices, and also the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations. And so is enabled to cast a soul upon the truth consequently believed. And also acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains. Yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So let's go back to the beginning. 
So by this faith, that is the faith of paragraph one, by this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself. So the believer comes to an understanding of what the word says concerning, and it'll, it'll say concerning what, or it affirms what we need to be able to um, understand there at the end of this paragraph. But whatever is revealed in the word, and this really is to affirm what, everything that was said prior in previous chapters and even in this chapter, that doctrine that I sort of emphasized in the previous chapter, where doctrine is coupled with devotion. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself and also apprehends an, excell an excellency therein. That is, he, he recognizes and apprehends that, that the word that, has, that is revealed is more excellent than so it says, an excellency therein above all other writings, that is, all other writings that, that are not of God with a false gospel in them, and then also all things in the world, that is, the light of nature, and that is, all, you know, whatever truths contradict what the scriptures say. Primarily here, we're talking about um, concerning that doctrine, that um, in regards to who God is, what sin is, who man is, what the covenant is, who Christ is, you know, the word, what, what is the gospel? Anything that would go to contradict that. The true believer, that Christian believer, by that same faith of paragraph one, believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word and believes these things over any other writings or all other things in the world goes on to say as it bears forth that is um, that is the word as the word bears forth the glory of God in his attributes the glory of God in his attributes and so here we see the glory of God in his attributes and then I want you to at least see that this confession is sort of going to present and affirm that it is a Trinitarian perspective concerning God that we are coming, that we are believing in, a work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it goes up, it says, as it bears forth the glory of God in his attributes, and now we see the Son, the excellency of Christ in his nature and offices. We saw that in chapter 8. Uh, I want to also say the glory of God in his attributes. We saw that in chapter 2. The excellency of Christ in his nature and offices. We see that in chapter 8. And now we see the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations. And we really see this in chapters 10 through 18. Chapters 10 through 18. The work of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the power and the fullest, fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and in his operations. And so, this Christian who has been saved by faith, and so this Christian is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth 
that he has believed. So we're able to, so true saving faith isn't just knowing these things, but it's believing these things. He has cast his soul upon the truth, consequently believed. He's, he's acknowledging these things to be true. Okay? But there's going to be a third facet of what true saving faith is um, that, that the um, confession will now here begin to flesh out. And also acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains. And so we can ask the question, how does he act? How does this Christian begin to act differently upon each particular passage thereof contained? He, that is, he is yielding obedience to the commands. He is trembling at the threatenings. And he is embracing the promises of God for this life and for that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ. That is, that he, has, that he is accepting, that he is receiving and resting upon Christ alone. And here we see the, the third sort of facet of what true saving faith is. It is not just knowing what the scriptures teach concerning redemption. And it's not just believing them, but it's truly accepting them. Accept and consenting to these truths as being the only means by which we can be saved. And so it says, but the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification. Again, doctrine, doctrine matters. So resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. And here it nuanced a phrase that we saw in the previous chapter, by the, where we saw by the virtue of Christ. This isn't a contradiction. This is just an affirmation that the person and work of Christ is through the covenant of grace. It says, by virtue of the covenant of grace. And so let's look at paragraph three. Paragraph three is going to be tr uh, the true nature of true saving faith. It's going to introduce a people that this um, paragraph will call temporary believers. And just for clarification's sake, temporary believers, and what we'll see is temporary believers were truly those who were never truly people that had true saving faith. What this paragraph wants to emphasize that whatever it is that led to their um, their temporary belief, it was n it was not that same work that is worked in those who are truly of saving faith. So it wants to differ not only differentiate between the two people, but it wants to say that whatever power was working in them no matter how good it was, is not the same power working in those of true saving faith. So we'll read paragraph three, and then we'll go back to the beginning, and we'll just sort of flesh out some things. So this faith, although it be in different stages, and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it, different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. And therefore... Though it may be many times assailed and weakened, 
yet it gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. So, so this faith, it begins to say, and this is the faith of um, chapter 14, paragraphs 1 and 2, this faith, although it be in different stages, remember in paragraph 1, though you know the, the lusts of the flesh are there, then and they may be weakened, and, and although they are weakened and um, destroyed, nevertheless, that, that remains in the believer. Although this faith, although it be in different stages, whether weak or strong, it goes on to say, yet it is in the least degree, no matter how weak it is, yet it is in the least degree, very different. I'm, I'm saying very, but it is different in the kind or nature of it. So in its kind and in it, the nature of this true saving faith, as is all other saving grace, it is different in kind and nature from the faith. And this is the faith of temporary believers. So if we want to define what is that faith, it's really no faith at all. But it's different in kind and nature from the faith and common grace. Common grace, this has to do with just those who are who recognize that, that there is a God that is good and wise and powerful. And they may, may even believe in God and or some aspect of a God in that regard. But whether it is from faith and, com and common grace, that this is different in kind of nature from that faith and common grace of temporary believers. And temporary believers are really those who foolishly rely on this faith that is an unto, or that is an unto salvation or even common grace as a, as a means by which they can find assurance of salvation. And so, because the faith of the elect, no matter whether they are in stages of, of strength, that their, their sanctification is experiencing a, a time, a season of being strong, or whether it finds itself in a, a stage where it's been given over to the lust of the flesh and it is weakened, no matter what, it is different from those who have no assurance of salvation at all. Therefore, and to emphasize assurance of salvation, and to establish it, the paragraph says, and therefore, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory, growing up in many, and then growing up in many, in those people of faith, to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ. This is why doctrine matters and a life of devotion, a life of, that is obedient to the commands of, of the head and king who is Christ, of giving ourselves over to the reading of the word and letting it dwell within us and, and allowing the spirit to mortify the flesh. The reality is that sometimes we might find ourselves in a, in a weakened stage where assurance of salvation begins to dwindle. This um, paragraph wants to affirm that for some, yes, they must truly see whether or not they have repented and come to true saving faith in Christ. But for those who have and look to the scriptures and affirm, you know, a knowledge and an understanding and an assent to the redemptive work of Christ, they may find full assurance through Christ because he is both the author and he is the finisher of our faith.
I hope you have received all this well. I pray that you have a blessed week and that you would grow in grace.